Hello, and welcome to Shadows of St. Fleur, an Urban Shadows actual play podcast. Urban Shadows is an urban fantasy role-playing game where the players are characters struggling to survive in a dark urban environment drowning in supernatural politics. It is a Powered by the Apocalypse game that was written, designed, and developed by Andrew Madeiras and Mark Diaz-Truman and is published by Magpie Games. This episode is Session Zero and will run much different than a normal episode as it is focused on introducing the players, the characters, the city, and the safety tools we'll be using to keep everyone at the table in an area where they feel safe. Next episode, we'll get into the action, so if you just want to jump right into that, feel free. But to start us off, hi, I'm Caitlin, the master of ceremonies for this podcast, and I use she, her pronouns. You can find me on Twitter at supercaitlin one Hi, you can call me Andy because that's my name. I use he, him pronouns. You can find me and my myriad of other projects on Twitter at AndyLion92. Hello, I am Eric. You can find me on Twitter at PrimeFactorX01. Hi, I'm Evan. You can find me on Twitter at Nyquist underscore JE. And you can find the games I design at Nyquist-JE.itch.io. Hello, I'm Jeremy. You can find me on Twitter at Tayuface, that is T-A-Y-U face. Or you can hear me run a bunch of nerds through superhero shenanigans at Apex CityCast. Hi, I'm Matthew, and I don't have much of an internet presence. So to kick us off, I am going to introduce everyone to the city. Typically, you play Urban Shadows in a real-life city, such as, you know, Chicago, Tampa, Los Angeles, what have you. However, I don't want to terribly misrepresent anybody's city on a podcast, so I kind of made up my own, which is allowed. And it's a bit of a mash between Chicago, Milwaukee, and Minneapolis. This city is St. Fleur. St. Fleur is a U.S.-based Great Lakes city that is located on a peninsula that juts into Lake Superior. It was founded in the 1820s by French settlers and was named after the first mayor's wife, Mabel Fleur, who was monikered St. Fleur due to her uncanny ability to give poignant advice and guide the city through some of its darkest hours. Definitely nothing magical there. Today, its population is around 1.2 million, so comparable in size to, say, Dallas. And it is composed of 11 major neighborhoods that have smaller neighborhoods within them, but this is just how we've broken up the city. So moving north to south, the very north neighborhood is Point Claire, which is a very sleepy and quiet neighborhood, as if it was lulled to sleep by the Lake Superior brushing on its shores. The roads here are pretty sparse and winding, and the houses that are here are fairly large and tucked within the trees. And the neighborhood itself is named after the large Gothic church that is situated on the end of the Cape, also known as Point Clare. Moving south, there is Northview, and this is your very stereotypical rich neighborhood. The further north you go, the richer it gets. Lawns are well manicured. Houses are behind gates. Everything is always in its right place. And of course, the St. Fleur Country Club is here. Uh, Next is Eldersburg, which is the oldest part of the city and the original settlement of St. Fleur. And the fact that it's so old really shows the infrastructure needs updated. There's graffiti and it's fairly cramped. The road layout makes no sense. It's just, it's the old historic downtown. Then there is Franklin Square, which is a little more cleaner and organized than Eldersburg. And this is the place where a lot of people who work downtown and don't want to live downtown stay. Lots of neat little high-rises, apartment complexes, cute little stores, and all the kind of gross and muckiness is kept in the alleyways. And crime has been oddly low here compared to what would be expected based upon the other neighborhoods. Of course, there's always your very stereotypical downtown, high-rises, big glass buildings, the roar of buses and trams, and, you know, that smell that all cities seem to have. There's a few big companies that are headquartered in St. Floor, and countless rooftop bars and underground speakeasies, if one knows where to look for them. It's very structured in its layout, minus major freeways, which will just cut straight through the city. To the south of that is Harbor Heights, which is that trendy, cool neighborhood. Ridiculously expensive for the space you get, and most of the Lakeview apartments here have massive waiting lists. It's a very up-and-coming area. There's always trendy clubs, restaurants, and all varieties of amusement that can be found here, as well as the port that St. Floor has for the lake. 
from here, it kind of starts to become a bit more rural and family friendly with Shadydale. This is a bit more of a nature focused area. And the farther west you move into Shadydale, the more rural it becomes. The west half is just basically a forest with lots of cabins and trailers hidden in the forest. And it's one of those neighborhoods that always seems to be covered in mist. Like it doesn't matter what time of year, something is always misty here. There's Hollis Crossroads, which is your very family-friendly neighborhood. White picket fences, nice school, movie theaters, big box grocery stores, and one of those huge sprawling malls that take up so much real estate that you always find in the Midwest. A few local shops are in this area too, but they tend to have really weird hours. Washington Terrace is just south of Harbor Heights and is like a cheap version of Harbor Heights and that really shows. It's not nearly as well-maintained, not nearly as trendy. And a lot of the neighborhood just doesn't seem to make sense. It's really hard to make your way across the neighborhood with a car. So the neighborhood both feels like it's trying way too hard, but is also severely underfunded. It also has the largest library that is near St. Fleur, though. Then we get our final two neighborhoods to the south, which are both technically outside of the city municipality. There's what the uh, locals have coined the outskirts. This is very much farmland, occasional house light forestry. It's always very quiet here and seems to have very nice weather. And then there's Warwick, which is also outside of the municipality. It's not a nice place to be. There's a lot of long roads with no outs that can make one really uneasy at night when it's really dark with miles between houses. But it has some of the best campgrounds in the area. So might be worth staying there. So just kind of high level of what you might know about St. Fleur. It is well known in the United States as being a center for banking, innovative freshwater technologies, fishing, and Christmas trees. It has bustling nightlife scenes that are located not far from some of the best camping you could hope to find, and basically everything in between. It has a surprisingly robust public transit system that always seems to be running perpetually late. A lot of people rely on it, and yet you never really actually know when the bus or subway is going to show up. There is a rich history of urban legends throughout all of St. Lur's past. There's rumors that Point Claire, the church on the Cape, is haunted. Rumors that St. Fleur has its own version of Bloody Mary that haunts the mirrors throughout the city. And there's a lot of rumors around the fog that gathers in Harbor Heights being unnatural and a foretelling of bad things to come. And as long as St. Fleur has existed, there has been supernatural here. It's just beneath the surface your normal citizen in St. Fleur doesn't know. But within the last couple of decades, as the population really boomed and space started to run out, tensions in the supernatural community have kind of hit an all-time high lately as they're fighting over territory and control of the city. It's not spilled out into the streets yet, and things are still done behind closed doors, but there's definitely a lot of friction and tension building up. Anybody have any questions off the top of their head? There's a giant spooky gothic cathedral that is definitely not haunted, right? I mean, there are rumors that it's haunted, but it's definitely not haunted. I mean, why would it be haunted? Yeah, why would it be haunted? Creepy people that, like, kick you out of the church and don't let you in and people talking about voices in the chapel? Yeah, not haunted. It's like graveyards. Nobody dies in a graveyard. Graveyards aren't haunted. Nobody dies in a church, right? Exactly. I have a question about some people that might live in the city. Go for it. Is there a long line of werewolves in this city? There are a long line of werewolves in this city. They have been around for at least the last century. There are some werewolves who live outside of town that don't really interact with humans much, but there are also definitely those that live in town. It is not well known, but your characters would likely know that the chief of police of the St. Fleur PD is actually a werewolf, but that is very well kept under wraps. Does the chief of police have a last name? Yes, the chief of police's name is Ileana Margaret. All right, I know my character's last name now. Quick question, did we get pronouns on the chief? She, her. Got it. I have a question, maybe. There are fake courts that are already established here in the city that um, I should be aware of? 100% there are. So there is a court of Seely Fay who also live right outside of the city. They have taken passing residence here over the last 200 years. So it's not always the same Seely Fay that are here, but they're here pretty consistently. And there is also a group of mostly unSeely Fay who run a pretty intense drug trade throughout the city. Got it. That makes sense. So from a supernatural standpoint, right? 
Is there a pretty even spread faction-wise, or is one of them kind of more or less in control? Right now, a lot of it depends on what area of the city that you are in, but it's pretty evenly spread. The wild faction tends to be the least represented across the city, just because it's a bit more of a hassle to get them there. And they're very much one foot in the human world, one foot out of the human world. But besides that, between night, mortality, and power, it seems to be fairly evenly split, with power kind of generally taking up a neutral stance on a lot of things and letting night and mortality fight it out. Cool, cool. If any other questions come up at any time while we're talking about characters, feel free to throw them my way. I think we can go ahead and move on to having everyone introduce their characters. So, Andy, can you please introduce your character, what their archetype is, name, look, demeanor, backstory, and gear? I will be playing Alistair Lockwood of the St. Flora Lockwoods, Master of the Arcane Arts. He uses the wizard playbook, but do not call him a wizard. He is a Master of the Arcane Arts. Thank you very much. He is a white male, he, him pronouns. He has sort of short, wild, very obviously dyed red hair. When I say dyed red, I mean like fire truck red. He wears clothing that is, it attempts to be fancy, but is very obviously like older and out of style. He almost always wears a pea coat. The best way to describe him is that he tries to look like he has more money than he does. His demeanor is detached. Like, the Lockwood family used to be a fairly prominent wizarding family. They have since more or less fallen out of their grace and social standing. But Alistair is under the impression that his name still carries a lot more weight than it does. So he tries to keep up that image, even though most people see through it fairly easily. You kind of answer this, but first of all, who are you? As stated previously, I am Alistair Lockwood of the St. Flora Lockwoods, Master of the Arcane Arts. That is how he introduces himself pretty much every time that he is going to be doing so. Like I said, he is part of the Lockwood family that used to be fairly prominent, has since fallen out of prominence, but Alistair is either unaware of that or willfully ignorant of the fact, probably leaning more towards the second one. So he is the only child. His parents did die when he was fairly young, though. He wasn't without them, though, because as he grew up in the Lockwood Manor, their spirits are inside of a mirror that he keeps in one of the guest bedrooms. So they were there to guide him through his studies in the arcane arts and train him into the wizard that he has become today. There are other Lockwoods that are sort of out there in St. Fleur. Alistair does not have any sort of connection to them, though, because his family was viewed sort of as like the black sheep branch of the family, and they have been more or less ostracized from the rest of the Lockwood clan. Sounds about right. All right, your next question. How long have you been in St. Fleur? The Lockwood family has been in St. Fleur for several generations, and Alistair was born and raised in the city as a consequence of that. So what keeps Alistair up at night? Well, for one, he wants to find out what happened to his parents. He was told that they were murdered in a run-in with some werewolves. He's not entirely sure that he believes that, but he wants to find out the details and ideally get revenge for them. He also has, as a result of his sanctum, he's very much nearly constantly under some sort of fire, proverbially, which does a lot to disrupt his sleep schedule. So that kind of answers my follow-up question of, does it literally keep you up at night? It sounds like it does. 
Yes, his sanctum is very well known, and other things that we will, I assume, get to in a little bit sort of keep him feeling near constantly threatened. So what has Alistair sacrificed for his power? Alistair has sacrificed quite a bit. His family wasn't necessarily a sacrifice since it was taken from him, but he has sacrificed sort of social standing or like a social life. He is more or less a shut-in, aside from the people that he interacts with to advance that power. He also has sacrificed his feelings of safety. He is very paranoid about people coming after him as a result of his power and what he perceives his family name to mean. So does he have any regrets about these sacrifices? I don't think so, no. He's pretty self-assured about who he is and what he's doing. So what does he desperately need? He desperately needs two different things, I would say. The first is answers about his parents' death. The second is sort of a combined answer of safety and his family name to rise to the prominence that it once was. He sort of views those two things as intertwined. If he is able to get himself back to the social stratosphere that he was in at one point, or at least that he perceived his family to be in, he feels like he won't have to worry as much as he does currently. All right, so that brings us to your gear. I get to start off with a nice apartment or a simple house. We talked about this previously, that his house is the Lockwood Manor. It sounds fancy, but at one point it was. It no longer is. The manor has fallen into a state of major disrepair. It's pretty much, if you imagine the Adams family house, but then twist it as if people had not been living in it for about 40 years or so, that would be pretty much what this place looks like. He also has a crappy car and a decent cell phone. He gets a mystical focus, which I will talk about in a minute, and a sanctum, which is his sort of home underneath of his house. The sort of basement of the manor has been hollowed out into where he practices his arcane arts. Should I go through the uh, benefits and drawbacks that I've got now? We will get to that in one second. Where is the Lockwood Manor? In St. Fleur. The Lockwood Manor is in the Eldersburg neighborhood. It is fairly easy to find there because it is a decent-sized, run-down, shitty-looking manor. With all the other decent-sized, run-down, shitty-looking manors that haven't been torn down yet in Eldersburg. Yes, but it has lights on. So, yes, the next thing then is your sanctum. Do you want to talk a little bit for those who may not be familiar about what exactly the sanctum is and then what the features and downsides are of your sanctum? Alistair's sanctum is where he goes to do his magical work, practicing and developing his arcane arts. As I said, this is basically a hollowed out basement underneath of his manor that he has developed into more or less a training ground and study area. The features that it has would include a library of old tomes, an extremely knowledgeable assistant who would be his parents' spirits trapped inside of that mirror. It also has a set of magical wards because he is quite paranoid. And those magical wards help to guard from the portal to another dimension that he also has down there. His parents dabbled in attempts at contacting and summoning demons, so there is a portal to the demonic dimension inside of his sanctum that he sort of got saddled with when he took over care for the sanctum. He's not a big fan of it, aside from seeing its benefits. It also makes him extremely paranoid that should the wards fail, 
he is likely to run afoul of some demons, which he would prefer not to do. That will definitely never, never come up. I would never do that. I mean, you wouldn't do anything mean to my characters. Speaking of, there are two downsides to my sanctum, which are it attracts otherworldly attention because, you know, demons. And then its location is known by many. Alistair is very braggadocious, which sort of goes counter to his paranoia. But, you know, he doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. That is a big reason why he feels like he is constantly under fire. All right. And we will circle back around to debts later. Is there anything else you want to throw out there about Alistair right now? His last piece of gear is a practical weapon, which would be a 9mm Glock, which is also his mystical focus. He fires his spells out of the barrel of his gun. All right, next on my list is the Scholar. So, Matthew, do you want to tell us about your character, what their name, look, demeanor, backstory, and gear is? All right, I will be playing... Lord Jeremiah Roderick Crawford III, Earl of Scarborough. His demeanor is smug, so very smug. He's a Caucasian male, wearing very expensive clothing, and he takes very great pride in looking his best. His fingernails are manicured, his hair is always perfect. He looks very much a part of a wealthy collector. All right, so who is Jeremiah? Tell us a little bit more about who he is. He was born Leonard Symes. He was originally from Toronto, and he took the name to sound a lot more important than he actually is. He's been in St. Fleur about five years at this point, and has no intention of leaving anytime soon. He learned about the supernatural through his family business. Everyone in his family dealt in supernatural rarities, and his uncle inducted him into the business and mentored him. All right, so it's family business, makes sense, but why did he stick around and stay involved after learning about the supernatural since it has inherent dangers in being involved? He was drawn to the power and the being able to accomplish the impossible. Also money. There's very good money to be made. All right, your next question is very interesting. Why is the city worth saving? Currently, this is where all his stuff is. And St. Flora seems to have a very curious property of being able to hide him from pursuers. What does he think he is saving it from? He thinks he's trying to save it from any supernatural occurrence or item that runs amok. Sometimes things get out of control, and he likes to think of himself as someone who puts those things in a jar, stores them away, and makes sure that they don't hurt anyone else, and later might turn a profit. So what mystery is he currently looking into? He is very interested in the perpetual fog in Shady Dales. He's heard just about a dozen rumors about it and is very devoted in trying to find out what exactly is going on with that. All right. Where does he live? And do you want to go through your gear? Because I know you also have a bag choice mm -hmm. that I'm very interested in. So he's currently renting a, a very nice flat in Franklin Square. He's got a mid-sized car, a smartphone, and reading glasses. And in addition, he has a messenger bag. And for that, I took the arcane bag. The bag itself has its own agenda. When you find yourself in a desperate situation, reach into your bag for help. The GM will tell you what item you find. So he's not sure what the bag exactly wants, but it seems to like him. So as the scholar, you have the arcane network, and there's some questions under your arcane network. There's a network of people who dabble in the arcane in St. Fleur, and I'm a part of that network. I get to pick three features for it initially. These are ritual meetings, a monthly marketplace, and a neutral appraiser. I like it. So whose collection in this arcane network do you covet? A man by the name of Eric Zarn. He has the largest collection of books, trinkets, charms, and everything else any up-and-coming scholar may want. And he is not afraid to laud it over everyone. Oh, so he's the type who lets you know that he has exactly what you're looking for. Yes. 
Even by Alistair's standards, he is a stuck-up, pretentious prick and needs to fall very hard. So who keeps things safe for you? Dinah Simmons. Jeremiah met her when he first came to the city. They struck up a pretty good friendship and have been seeing each other on and off for about five years at this point. They trust each other enough to sort of leave each other their keys and say, hey, can you look after this for me? And they trust each other not to stab the other in the back, even if there was uh, something to be gained from it. So is this a purely platonic relationship? Uh, no. Okay. Well, it's sort of like swings between platonic and romantic, depending on how things are going that year. Good to know. And who in your network suspects that you're scamming them? Hugo Babin, a relative newcomer to St. Fleur. Jeremiah suspects that he's got a pretty good stash of artifacts somewhere that he's not telling anyone about. And he's trying to get him to talk about friend. And Hugo is getting suspicious of Jeremiah's talk and dealings with him. You also have your private collection. I would like to know what your most prized possession in that collection is and what dirty deeds you had to do to acquire it. Jeremiah's most prized possession, and the reason he had to leave Toronto in the first place, is a gin trapped in a bottle. There is a newcomer to the Toronto Magical Network, a Turkish mage called Nisanur Aris Badem, who came to Toronto after fleeing events she never disclosed back in Turkey. And Jeremiah's family took a great interest in appropriating some of her property. So one arranged car accident later, and hiring some people to break in, Jeremiah's family got possession of a lot of her stuff. And that backfired horrifically, as they did not cover their tracks nearly as well as they thought they had. Miss Badem took revenge on the arranged car accident and break-in. Jeremiah fled uh, with a sizable amount of cash and some artifacts that he could get together, one of which was the gin in a bottle, and has been hiding in St. Fleur ever since. All right. Next on my list is the vamp. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, Jeremy, tell us about who you're playing, what their name is, background, look, all the dirty detail. All right. This is going to get a little complicated. Not very. I'm playing a vampire. His name is Alex Giroux, although it hasn't really always been. He is a mid-50s white guy, generally dresses kind of business casual, can fancy that up or down as necessary. And demeanor-wise, he is a little volatile. He can go from being very, very nice and sweet and helping you out to tearing your throat out with his teeth in like no time flat, just, just on a dime. Tell me more. Who is Alex? So Alex, as a person, started life as kind of the third son of a farming family in northern France somewhere around like the 1790s. He's not exactly sure what that date is because they were, you know, broke peasant farmers. And when Napoleon swept through, he kind of swept in along with that and actually joined as an armsman during the Sixth and Seventh Coalition Wars, which obviously did not go very well for Napoleon after which he joined the family in exile until the return of Louis-Napoleon III, who is, as he would put it, the last true emperor of France and the last true emperor that Europe will ever see. Shortly thereafter, Louis-Napoleon kind of got into something called the Crimean War. It was real bad guys. And shortly after that, Alex died alone on the shores of the Black Sea in about 1856. And the rest is kind of history. So how long has Alex been in St. Fleur? So he made his way over during the kind of early days of World War I. He had seen enough to know where this was going, because like he went through three major wars before he even died. And he's like, this is not going to end well. So he, he's been here since about the winter of 1914. And that ocean crossing was pretty calm. A couple of passengers took ill along the voyage, but you know, it's been fine. And in the meantime, Alex has been here as a bookseller and kind of a restorationist, a preservationist. And sort of under the table, he's got a reputation that he can help you with certain problems you might have. Like, for instance, if you have some trouble with, you know, legal problems or otherwise, and you need to disappear, or if you need someone else to disappear, you know, he'll help you for a price. So, tell me, who turned you? Nobody. <laughs> Fucking nobody. <laughs> <laughs> 
Alex was not turned so much as he turned. So I did a ton of research for this and a lot of really old vampire lore, especially in the area that he died. You weren't made a vampire by someone else. It was something that happened if you died, you know, alone in the wilderness or if you were betrayed by someone that you trusted or if you weren't buried correctly. And in Alex's case, it was all of those things. So nobody actually like bit him and turned him into a vampire. It just happened. And in his case, he drinks blood, but blood is just kind of the medium through which he gets his actual sustenance, which is a long way of saying, Alex fucking eats souls, guys. It's real bad. So he definitely tries to keep that in check because they don't go anywhere. If he just nibbles on you, if he doesn't kill you, that's fine. It's going to come back after a while and uh, everyone goes home happy. But if he actually, you know, eats you to the point that you die, you're just in there forever. And Alex doesn't dream anymore, but the people inside him do. So he keeps his cravings in check. He runs a bookstore. It's called Shelf Indulgence. He's very active in the day-to-day of his business. He's very active in his community, and he's also an avid illuminator. So he makes very tiny, intricate paintings in the margins of otherwise unremarkable books. And once the book is full, he burns it. There's probably some symbolism in there somewhere, I don't know. So what scheme is he currently invested in with all of these hobbies? You know, I think at this point, Alex is getting a little bit ambitious. And I think he wants to expand his territory. Right now, he lives on Point Claire with the giant spooky, definitely not haunted church. And I think he sort of wants to expand that out from like, he's got his bookstore and his, you know, kind of loft above that. And like his little, you know, one street area that nobody sort of comes into. I think he wants to take over this neighborhood just entirely at this point because he feels like he can run it better. All right. I'll be interested to see how that plays out for him. So we've established that you have the flat in the bookstore, which is in Point Claire. What is your other gear? I get a secluded apartment, which is, you know, a little loft above the bookstore. I also get a comfortable car. And uh, I think the key word there is comfortable. And Alex, having been here for as long as he has, I think his idea of comfortable is a 1930 uh, Rolls Royce Phantom. This is sort of like the one nod he makes towards being very, very extra. He also has a smartphone, because Alex keeps up with the times, you have to have one of those. And he has one very stylish weapon, which is an old French arming sword that he keeps hung in his office between two paintings. So he doesn't normally carry the sword. Oh god, no. Is this his sword? It is not. So, a little bit of his backstory. He was leading a fairly large regiment during the Crimean War, and over the course of three years, that got down to five people. This is one of those people, and it was uh, the last member of his regiment that he killed after turning into a vampire. Nice. Is there anything else you want to share about Alex? As part of his moves, and I know we're not technically talking about those, but one of those is Haven, and as part of that, you get ghouls. So the way that works for Alex is that if he happens across, just happens across a dead body that he didn't actually feed on himself, right? He can, in fact, bring that back to life by feeding it a little bit of his blood. It lives for one year. It is otherwise a very normal whoever it was before. And at the end of that year, they turn to dust. Alex uses them to run his bookstore. All right. Now that we've gotten through the elitist three-fifths of this cast, Evan, would you like to introduce your wolf? I'm going to be playing Victor Margaret. He's a white man with short brown hair and a very thick beard. And he's wearing dark, heavy clothing because it is the middle of winter and he is homeless. What is his demeanor? His demeanor is violent. He is trying to get a handle on his anger, but it's not going great. And as the son of the chief of police and a werewolf... There's not tons of repercussions for being a very violent person. Well, that leads us very well into this next question. Who are you? He is a member of a long line of werewolves. I don't think he's necessarily the youngest, but he is the youngest supernaturally politically active one. He is also the Baron of Five Points, which is a small neighborhood inside of Eldersburg. He claimed that title in ritualized combat during the recent winter solstice. So how long have you been in St. Fleur? He's lived here almost his entire life. He moved out into the country with his aunt and uncle for a few years when he was younger, when he went from being a child werewolf to having to do werewolf things on his own to try and get a handle on that. 
he's more or less got it under control, I guess. That was the only time he's been outside of the city for longer than a week or two. So when Victor changes, what is the best part of the change? No distractions, no worries, no hesitation, just power and action. It's freeing to be so unafraid of what might come next. And outside of the change, when he's not actively his werewolf form, how does that make Victor feel that that's how he feels when he's changed? He is concerned about it in a way that he should definitely talk to a therapist about, but doesn't and just ignores it. He worries about a lot of things. He's recently claimed a very important magical location in the city and doesn't have tons of good plans for what to do with that. But when he's a wolf, he doesn't have to worry about those things. He can just do something. So who is the most important person in his territory? That would be Midnight Roses, who is an important fae fixer. She knows a lot, probably too much. She knows the local history, the politics of the city, the nature of the magics in my neighborhood. If you've got a question, she'll probably be able to answer it, but you probably won't like either the answer or the payment. Her apartment is just by the entrance of one of the apartment buildings on the square. And I've been told she makes really nice cookies. How does Victor feel about Midnight Roses? He has been told his entire life to be wary of the Fae. She seems all right, though. What does Victor desperately need? Security. He claimed this neighborhood by the old laws, but like that only lasts as long as he's alive. And he doesn't currently have a house or an apartment or anything in his territory. He can't be barren if he's squatting. And he can't really do the whole thing if he's just by himself. All right, so that brings us to gear. I think we've established where you live, which is on the streets of Five Points. Mm -hmm. What else do you have under your gear? I have a shitty cell phone. It is a flip phone with the screen cracked. I have two practical weapons, a baseball bat, and a snub-nosed revolver. And also, my most important possession, a duffel bag with all of it in it. So I'd like to draw some attention to the wolf-specific things. The first is the transformation. What happens when you transform, and what are the benefits and the downsides? I can change into my wolf form when the full moon rises. I have natural weaponry that does three harm. I have one armor. I can resist the change, but it's not easy. And I can only change back at sunrise. Also, when I battle groups, I fight like a small group. Silver weapons ignore my armor. And when I transform, I have to keep it cool or declare a hunt. And then the other section is your territory. We've established that it is five points within Eldersburg. But what are the extra tags? It automatically has plus crime because that's life. It does. And I didn't get rid of it either. So crime is a problem in five points. As much as it's a problem anywhere, you know. My territory spans several city blocks, which gives me the blessing influence, meaning I'm important, my territory is important, and I am widely accepted as this place's protector and the blessing supported. People in Five Points, mundane or magical, know that I am in charge of this area, and I try to keep people safe as much as I can, but I'm just a guy who's sometimes a wolf. There's just one of me. Also... Someone more powerful wants your territory and is working to get at it. I add the trouble encroachment. I'm not sure who exactly that might be, but I'm down for anybody and everybody who's coming. Also, my territory is plagued by a mystical or supernatural presence and has the trouble haunted. I'm thinking less that it's chock full of ghosts, but it is also like an important center of magical power in the city. So this could be like an avenue for things from beyond to enter the city or a place people might want to use powerful magics. All right. I like it. Is there anything else you would like to share about Victor before we move on? None of this time. I think I'm good. So last but certainly not least, we have Eric with the Fae. So I am playing the Fae known only as Silk. He is male asian and wears very colorful clothing not always matching but always eye-catching 
He has a very alien demeanor. It's very hard to tell what it is that he wants, what it is that he's doing. So tell me a little more. Who is Silk? He's a facilitator. He is the I know a guy guy. He makes deals as a matter of course and likes to cash them in for seemingly strange things sometimes. No one really knows what it is that he's doing. Sometimes he will call in a debt to like take the thumbtack that you accidentally stepped on. Weird things like that. Interesting. How long has Silk been in the city? Silk has been here since exactly midnight, January 1st of the year 2000. What do you love most about humanity? I love that humans just want. It's something that's very alien to me. I usually just have what I want when I'm back home. And the way that they are so willing to sacrifice themselves and others to get what they want is just wonderful to play with. All right. Who is Silk's closest confidant in the city? His closest confidant is actually going to be a priest in the spooky church. I don't have a name for him yet, but the idea is that this is someone that is so content with his lot in life, so sure of his life now and his like his everlasting soul that he doesn't want anything. And that lets Silk just talk to them. All right, we will definitely workshop a name later. So what does Silk confide in them? This actually probably goes with the last question of uh, what do you desperately need? Silk desperately needs to feel needed. He can get things for people, help them do things, but very, very rarely do people want Silk. Just what he can do. We're on to gear. So where in the city do you live, first and foremost? So I live in uh, Harbor Heights. I live in a condo that's part of a set that's like each one is painted a different color to represent the rainbow and i live in the violet condo very important question are these lakefront condos yes and no one is quite sure how silk manages to afford it all right what else is on your gear list so he also drives a tesla that is painted so it changes colors as like the sun glints off of it again very eye-catching and he has a smartphone. The interesting thing about the smartphone, though, is he has a bajillion contacts, but none of them are by name. Everyone has a title. The one who knocks or the, the standing man. Things like that that no one will ever really understand except for Silk. What is the relic Silk has from the homelands? Silk has a branch that cycles through growing leaves, flowers, turning yellow and falling off all within the 24-hour cycle of a day. And he doesn't really talk too much about it, but it does have a place of honor in his house. And then what is the symbol of your court? And then by extension, really, what court is Silk part of? Because I don't really know what the factions are here yet, I'm just going to go with the Sealy court. But just for some interesting foreshadowing, and I don't know what it means yet, Silk has a laurel crown. Next up, we have debts. So all the character sheets have three debts listed on them. And ideally, I would like these debts to be with other players at the table since we have such a variety of people. I was planning on this being a little bit more freeform instead of just going down the line so that if anybody has any ideas that have jumped up to them already, you can go ahead and put that out there. I have an idea here for a debt for Silk. You entrusted someone with a dangerous task. Ask them if they succeeded or failed. If they succeeded, I owe them a debt. If they failed, they owe me two debts. And I think I want that to be with our werewolf friend. I asked him for a lock of the police chief's hair. I'm going to say I managed to get that for you. Beautiful. So you owe me that. Yep, I owe you a debt. I've got one for one of my debts. You scam someone out of something rare and priceless they cannot recover. You owe them free debts. I'm going to go with Alistair. That's how I got my arcane bag. I stole it off of you. I can definitely see that. I want to establish this one pretty early. Someone lives in your territory benefiting from your protection. They owe you a debt. I'm pretty sure only one other person is currently in Eldersburg. 
So uh, that's you, Alistair, if I recall correctly. That would be me. You want to live in my territory? I definitely could see Alistair choosing to live in wolf territory just for that protection. All right. Yeah. I've got one where someone relies on me for their fix and they owe me a debt. I actually want to go with Silk on that one. So Silk, what's your fix? What do you need? That is interesting. I like to have people experience strong emotions that aren't caused by me because I can do that and that's boring. So I think the books you give out and people feeling those emotions as they read them, I think I kind of feed off of those. Nice. Okay, I like that. I've got one for for a werewolf. Someone has been tipping you off to your enemy's tactics. You owe them two debts. Victor, you keep Jeremiah abreast of people who might try and mess with him. Alistair does live on my territory. Even better. One of mine is someone is your go-to when you get into trouble. You owe them two debts. And that seems to fit in with Silk's sort of MO, if that is acceptable to you. That works just fine for me. So Alistair owes me two debts? Yes. All right, so I think everyone has done one now. So round two. If you don't mind, I will start off round two after ending round one. The next one I had is someone is helping you keep your demons at bay. You owe them a debt. I feel like that sort of works with our vampire, Alex. Ooh, neat. So what kind of demons am I helping you with? Well, I was wondering if it might be the literal actual demons that threatened to burst through the portal in my sanctum. Oh, hells yes. I don't know exactly how you help, whether that's physically fighting them off or helping me to secure it. We can sort of flesh that out as we go if you'd like. Yeah, I'm sure we can figure something out. And that is one debt? Yes, that is one debt. I think I might have a good connection for our scholar friend, Jeremiah. So I am keeping something hidden for someone. They owe me a debt. So something in your collection that you don't want people to know about could be just chilling in my lakefront condo. Ooh. What item from your collection have you entrusted to Silk? I don't know yet. All right, it'll come up at a convenient point at a later time. All right, so how many debts do I owe you from that? Just one. So someone makes sure that I get fed regularly, and I owe them two debts. I think actually I want to put that one on Jeremiah as well. Oh, God. So I owe you two debts, and you know what I eat. Because uh, Alex is very much not about going out and actively hunting, but at the same time, when he doesn't eat for a long time, he gets real weird and kind of cranky. So, uh... It's probably in your mortal's best interests that I occasionally get a snack. (laughs) So, Silk, someone is hiding you from someone or something powerful, and I owe them a debt. I think you're keeping me hidden from whoever's trying to encroach on my territory that has yet to be established. And that's with uh, Victor, right? Yes. How many do you owe me? I owe you one debt. Got it. Everyone should be down to their final debt. I actually have a thing for my third one, which I've been very excited about. So someone bears responsibility for me becoming a vampire, and they owe me a debt. As we kind of established earlier, nobody actually turned me, it just happened. But it happened during an ambush just after the Crimean War, which, as it turns out, was primarily between the French, British, and the Russians. And we do have a Russian werewolf here. I think one of your ancestors killed me, and I've been holding it over your entire family's head for, like, 150 years. So I think I want that one to be Victor. So Victor, you owe me a debt for that. Alright, you got it. But historically I've never cashed that in, so... So I have one that is... You are helping someone keep a dangerous secret. They owe you a debt. So I think Jeremiah might have some interesting little secrets that I may have helped him keep. Alright, we'll work those out later. I have one last one, and I have one last player that doesn't owe me, so I would like to fix that. Someone broke an important promise to you and swore they would make it up to you. They owe you two debts. And I think I would like to hash that out with Alex. So I broke a promise to you, huh? I am honestly drawing a blank here, but I am more than willing to work that out with you. 
could be something like you fed on someone that I promised to protect or something like that. Oh, no, I like that. So maybe you asked me to keep someone safe for you and I killed them? <laughs> Either that or you just ignored them or let them die for some other reason. Up to you. Yeah, I like that. Not sure what to do with my last debt. You're someone's hookup for relics and arcane items. They owe you two debts. Who are your options that are left? Let's see. I'm thinking Silk. I hook you up with stuff. Weird random relics. I can do that. All right. You owe me two debts. So someone hired me for a job and I fucked it up. Alex, are you cool trying to hire me to do a job and me just totally botching it? Yeah, absolutely. Do we want to figure out what that job was or do we just want to do that later? I'm down to do that. I'm good at violence. Once a month, I have to kill somebody. That makes sense. So if there was somebody that I specifically needed killed, but I didn't want to do it myself. He killed the person that you were asked to protect. Yes. Oh, no, this makes sense. Because Alex is like, okay, this Faye wants me to protect this person. There's a giant werewolf here. What's safer than a werewolf? And one of your things is that you have to either keep it cool or declare a hunt when you change. Yep. And I think you just didn't keep it cool. <laughs> no. And the person was annoying. Oh, I love that. That is so good. Yeah, I'm about it. Perfect. Seems slightly more than two, but that's the rules. All right. So I think we have everyone covered on debts. I believe so. Yep. 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 Yes, everyone owes silk. Debts everywhere. One of my favorite things in Urban Shadows. All right. So that brings us to our final topic, which is a quick chat that I just want to have on air because I think it is important that we highlight this. And that is safety tools. We are telling an urban fantasy story where the characters involved will have inherently political lives in the supernatural world. This can easily cross into territory, which makes people uncomfortable. So it's important that everyone at the table is on the same page about what comfortable and allowable is. So what I started with was having everyone fill out the RPG consent checklist from Monty Cook's Consent in Gaming, which was written by Sean K. Reynolds and Shanna Germain. For the listeners who may not have seen this, basically there's a bunch of different topics anywhere from mental health to romance and sex to genocide and racism. And it's a green, yellow, red system where red is like, absolutely not. Green is all good. And yellow is kind of in an in-between. Kind of what came out of that first off is that we do have a general yellow around romance. So I'm interested in understanding a bit more at the table where people are comfortable with romance and when it becomes uncomfortable. Or is yellow mostly just a don't shove it down my throat, but if it happens, it happens thing? For me personally, it's like I don't want the whole story to start focusing around it. It's like I'm fine with it as an element. I just don't want like I don't want it to be ubiquitous, if that makes sense. That makes sense. For me, it's mostly comes down to I'm OK if anyone else does it that doesn't involve me. But if you want to involve me in it, uh, I want to get it okay beforehand. Yeah, and I'm kind of in that same camp there. Where like, especially with this particular character, he's not likely to be romantically inclined towards anyone who's like 130 years younger than him. I think the joke is that Alex's ongoing romance is with the spooky church at the end of the pier. Age is just a number, baby. <laughs> a very large <laughs> difference in numbers, yes. <laughs> well, what if someone's an otherworldly, ageless being? Uh, you are going to have to fight that church for my affections. All right. So it sounds like basically where we're at is we don't want romance to be the focus of the story. And if you are pursuing romance with another character or if I as an MC have an NPC who is going to be trying to pursue a romance with another character, get the player's consent on that before it happens. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to kind of clarify in my case, I am okay with, you know, like an NPC pursuing Alex romantically, just with the understanding that it's probably not going to end well. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same as the other players. For me as a player, um, romance is perfectly okay with me. So if anyone wants to get in on that silk smoothness, go for it. Oh, trust me, NPCs will try. Which is why I wanted to have this conversation is because I'm somebody who I like romance in my story. So it's important that I as MC understand where everyone's boundaries are. But of course, I will not make it the focus. It's not the focus here. 
All right. So the next one that I wanted to cover was around social and cultural issues, which is things like homophobia, transphobia, racism, sexism, etc. These across the board were generally yellowed except for racism, which was marked as a red. So I did kind of want to have a conversation with what are we comfortable with here and how do we tell an urban story while respecting our boundaries? For example, I'm somebody due to my own life experiences, I am completely comfortable telling a story about sexism because, hey, I'm a woman. It's something I've experienced in my life. I feel like I can tell a story that's true to sexism. Whereas, you know, I personally don't experience racism in my life. I don't experience a lot of homophobia. So it's kind of understanding what we all bring to the table and how we engage with that topic when we still have a urban city at the same time. I guess I'll be the first one to speak up again. The reason I yellowed most of what I did is mostly like, I'm one of those people that thinks, as far as media goes, if it makes sense for the character, then I'm okay with it. Like, if you have, like, a sexist character, then yeah, sure. But I don't want it to necessarily be, like, viewed as a good thing. Like, it definitely, I feel like there needs to be not even necessarily, like, an explicit disclaimer, but, like, the way it's framed needs to be, like, hey, this is an asshole character with asshole views. This isn't a good person. I think framing really is kind of what it comes down to. It's very easy, like, for instance, for me as a mostly straight cis white guy to get into territory that could be hurtful to other people. And most of why I would do that stuff is because I don't think that it's, it's my particular strong point. One thing that I love about Urban Shadows is that it does allow you to explore those themes in a way that it's slightly softened by the nature of what we're, you know, I'm a 150-year-old undead vampire. Maybe I just don't like werewolves. Maybe that's a mirror for something else, right? Right, which is good, because that was kind of my corollary question of, okay, I'm not comfortable being racist, but I'm comfortable having a wolf that will hate all vampires. Right? And you can use that to kind of like show a mirror, which is something that, you know, Urban Shadows does very, very well. Right. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, but are we an all-white podcast? I am not white. All right, cool. So we're a predominantly white podcast. And a predominantly male podcast. Also that. The things I yellowed, I was specifically like, I'm okay with these being in the game as long as members of the minority who will be negatively affected of them who are in this game are cool with it. But otherwise, probably we should not. Specifically racism, I'm not interested in telling a story about like about racism so much as like, hey, if it's in there, it's not necessarily a no-go, but like, we should be careful (laughs) and not be telling stories out of school. It's a tricky thing to get right, since we are putting this out for public consumption. If we try and say anything on that topic, we're gonna, there will definitely be, trying to find the right way to word this. Um, It can be very hard to do respectfully and to tell a story about that without a lot of backlash and trying to do it well is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable because like i don't think anyone any one of us really wants to like role play racism or homophobia we want to you know uh get eaten by vampires and investigate supernatural horror stuff all right so where we're at is it sounds like this is not the story that we're telling we're not telling a story specifically about these topics we are telling a story about supernatural politics Now, some things that happen in supernatural politics might be a mirror to these real-world topics. Yeah, and I I think that's pretty fair. And if a character is sexist, homophobic, transphobic, racist, what have you, make sure it's clear that they are a shitty person. As long as they get their comeuppance in the end. All right. Yeah, you know, their soul eaten. I, I mean, I don't want that in my head forever. Come on. All right, I'll bite the bullet and maul them. All right. And then another one that was generally yellowed across the board was verbal and physical abuse in relationships between NPCs, PCs and NPCs and PCs to PCs. So understandable that this is an area that is yellowed. Again, it's not necessarily the story that we're telling. But what does yellow mean here? I mean, to me, that means clearly there is no depiction of, oh, you see action happen. But is it something that it's, oh, you meet this person and you see bruises? Is that okay? 
I'm fine with it if it's off screen when it happens. Seeing evidence of that sort of thing is perfectly fine and can drive story, but I just kind of don't want to see it happening. Yeah. And again, that's almost exactly what I was going to say there is it's one of those areas where I think showing you the aftermath and kind of framing not the action, but the repercussions of it is probably going to be the more tactful way to do that. Yeah, to borrow another safety tool, uh, lines and veils, to sort of borrow from that, I'm good with that being behind a veil, which is basically what we've talked about. It's not something I want to ignore, like sort of sweep under the rug, pretend like it doesn't happen, because it definitely does. It's just, I'd rather not see it. That all sounds good. I'd also just like a heads up, like out of character beforehand, if it's going to be a thing, so I can just get in the headspace for it. Right. And that's also a good moment to mention for listeners right now. I do plan on putting trigger warnings at the beginning of any episodes we have where content that could be triggering is engaged with, as well as in episode descriptions. Again, we might not end up needing this, but given the content, I can see it going uncomfortable places. So I just want to make sure that we are prepared to interface with that. Can I throw out one last thing? Yes. I personally am okay, like, if it's being threatened, or like, if we see it about to happen, I'd be okay with that, as long as we have a chance to like, step in and prevent it. All right, that makes sense. So it's about not making the characters helpless in that situation. Yes. All right. And then the last topic I wanted to cover, because even though I sent out two different checklists, I totally forgot to include it on either of them, is depictions of drug use. How do we feel about that? I am actually okay with that. Drugs are fine. By me. I have no problem with it. I also have no experience with it. So if I'm going to be asked to sort of have my character be in some sort of altered state, I can't play that faithfully, but I don't have a problem with it per se. Yeah, I'm fine with that too. I don't have a problem with it either. All right. And yes, I will not be legitimately drugging your characters. Don't worry. If Alistair were to get drugged, it would most likely be somebody cast a magic on him or used a potion. It'll be something not actual drugs. This is more like NPCs, people on the street. Who knows? Magic crack. I mean, to be fair, I fully intend to take Adaptable Palette as my first corruption advance. And that does say that feeding on something vastly different from a human will have unexpected side effects. Right. So there we go. So full consent. (laughs) Get high on dogs. (laughs) Hey man, you got any of them dogs? You uh, you got any of them sea lions left? (laughs) Oh god. (laughs) There are definitely not like sirens in the lake. I would never do that. Oh, I don't have to breathe. I'm into it. (laughs) (laughs) That's cold out there. Whatever. I'm already dead. What's the worst that can happen to me? All right, so that does bring us to lines and veils. I will send out one final form for us to do this so that people can submit what their lines and veils are anonymously, and I will then share it with the group as a whole. I did just Google. Lines and veils were originally discussed by Ron Edwards in a piece called Sex and Sorcery. So thank you, Ron Edwards, for this. For any listeners who may not know, a line is a hard no, we do not go there. So for example, for me, explicit sex is a line. I'm not going to describe it. I'm not verbally going to go through that with somebody. That is a line. Darn. Yes, exactly. That is porn. In my opinion, porn is a line. Whereas a veil is something that can happen, but it doesn't happen on screen. So if two characters were to have sex, we have the lead up and then the camera pans to the fireplace or the curtain fluttering in the wind. And we all know what took place, but we didn't see it. We didn't really talk about it. It's great. Or just a shot of the spooky church. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the spooky church is our fail. Is that a euphemism? (laughs) No, like sex is going to happen. Pan to a shot of the spooky church. All right. And then we have two more tools that we will be using in this game. The first is the support flower, which is by the Act Apart. This is a image, and you can Google it, of what looks like a flower. It's green on the outside, and then there's a set of yellow petals, and then it's red on the center. And it's a way to be able to visually show how you are feeling about how things are going in the game. Everybody in Roll20 has been given a different colored token that you can place on the flower as you see fit. 
And I will always have that up as I'm GMing. I will always be looking at that. So that's a real easy way to communicate if we're getting close to an area and hopefully be able to back things off before we totally cross the line. But if we ever do cross a line without even, you know, that being discussed as being a line, something suddenly just doesn't sit right with you. We will also be using the X card, which is a tool by John Stavropoulos. John, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, because I'm sure I messed that up. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. If content ever touches something where it's just you don't want to be there, you don't want to deal with that, you can either say X, drop it in the chat, however you want to explain that you are tapping the X card. And this can be for anything. Maybe I'm describing a bunch of centipedes on somebody and oh my gosh, you really hate centipedes. Just exit and we'll swap it out for something that's creepy, but not triggering for you like beetles. So when an X card is played, you do not have to explain why you are not okay with the content. You do not owe us any justification, but you do need to say what content you are not okay with. And then we can just have a quick, here's how we're going to change gears and move forward in another way that stays, you know, true to the scene or true to the intent, but keeps everyone as players in a comfortable, safe spot. So those are all the tools that I am explicitly using. I know there's a variety of other safety tools out there on the internet. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in looking into more about this, I know there's an open door policy. You can have stop pause, play, fast forward, rewind options. Basically, not that we will not be using any of those types of tools. This is just to set a baseline of here's the tools we do definitely have in play and keep the conversation going on between all the players at the table so that everyone is happy, healthy, and safe. Safety tools are real good. Yes, they are. And so that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. This episode will be dropping at the same time as session one. So go ahead and listen to that next episode and find out what these characters are up to as the clock strikes midnight on New Year's Eve. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to subscribe to us on your preferred podcatcher and follow us on Twitter at St. Fleur Pod. If we're not on your preferred podcatcher yet, let us know, and we'll do our best to fix that. Shadows of St. Fleur is an Urban Shadows actual play podcast emceed and edited by Caitlin Cornell. You can find her on Twitter at SuperCaitlin1. Alistair, Master of the Arcane Arts, is voiced and played by Andy. You can find him on Twitter at AndyLion92. Alex, the lover of spooky churches, is voiced and played by Jeremy. You can find him on Twitter at TayuFace. The Fae known only as Silk is voiced and played by Eric. You can find him on Twitter at PrimeFactorX01. Victor, the Baron of Five Points, is voiced and played by Evan. You can find him on Twitter at Nyquist underscore JE. And finally, Jeremiah, collector of all things supernatural, is voiced and played by Matthew. Urban Shadows is a Powered by the Apocalypse tabletop role-playing game written, designed, and developed by Andrew Medeiros and Mark Diaz-Truman. It is published by Magpie Games, who you can find at magpiegames.com or on Twitter at magpieofficial. The intro music used in this episode was Epic Unease by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompotech.com. The outro music used in this episode is Dark Carnival VL by Paratoon. You can find their work at paratoon.com. The safety tools referenced in this episode were Monty Cook's Consent in Gaming by Sean K. Reynolds and Shanna Germain. You can pick up a copy of this PDF for free at montecook.com. The Support Flower by The Act Apart. You can pick this up for whatever price you desire at theactapart.com. The X Card by John Stavropoulos. You can find this for free at tinyurl.com x-card-rpg. And finally, Lines and Veils, which were originally introduced by Ron Edwards in his piece Sex and Sorcery. Farewell, and we'll see you next time that you visit St. Fleur.